are hearing is the song Boris Frankenstein's Nightmare. It's from the band Beware the Dangers of a Ghost Scorpion from their self-titled album that came out earlier this year. You can find them at ghostscorpion.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, which is the website for the podcast that you're listening to right now. The podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Yeah, it's Monster Kid Radio, and I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. This is episode number 479, and this time around, uh, you know, we changed things up a little bit. I know I said last week it was probably going to be an episode about the thriller episode Pigeons from Hell. Well, that's getting pushed back a little bit because I wanted to make sure that we had time to talk with filmmaker Sebastian Godain about his upcoming movie, Abominations of Frankenstein. There is a Kickstarter campaign running for it right now as of this recording there are still 24 days to go so there's plenty of time for you to get involved with this project now Seb and I are going to talk a little bit about this we're going to talk a little bit about his most recent film Blood Rites of the Vampire and we're going to talk about an incredible Hammer film 1971's Blood from the Mummy's Tomb and if you've read the description for this episode you know that I kind of implied that Seb and I kind of go all over the place and yeah that did kind of happen now we do talk about the movie We do talk about his projects, we do even play a round of the Classic Five, but then we just started talking like a couple of old movie-loving friends, and it was a good time. We talk more about Hammer, we talk about another filmmaker that I've never talked about here on the show. We make plans for future episodes, it's just a fun conversation, and I hope you guys and gals dig it. I also hope that you dig Kenny's contribution this week. His look at famous monsters of Filmland totally rocks. This is a fun episode. I'm excited to get to it. Before we get to the rest of it, though, I want to go ahead and mention this weekend, Monster Kid Radio is participating in Kaiju Conline. This is the virtual convention spearheaded by our friend Kyle Yount, formerly of the Kaiju cast, currently of the Collect All Monsters YouTube series. He has organized rather quickly and rather professionally a virtual event. It's not quite G-Fest, but if you go to G-Fest, if you know what G-Fest is, it's going to feel just like that. And we are participating in a couple of different ways. First of all, the Saturday stream, the Social Distance Saturday, yeah, we're chucking that out the window because this weekend we become Kaiju Kid Radio, and we're doing nothing but Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies all day on Saturday. And we're even starting a little earlier than normal to make sure that anybody who wants to come over and watch the movies and watch some cartoons and anything else that we end up running... Well, they can do so. So starting at 8 a.m. Pacific, you'll want to head over to the Twitch stream and just kick back and enjoy the kaiju goodness. The Twitch stream can be found in a couple of different places. Twitch.tv slash Monster Kid Radio is what we've been telling everybody, and that's still going to get you there. But you can also go to monsterkidmovie.club. That's going to take you there as well. And that's actually where we're going to start sending people for the most part moving forward because this is where you're going to find links for our merchandise that we now have through Twitch. Donations are going to be a lot easier and it's just going to look a lot more cool. We have a new layer layout kind of thing going on and we're going to start looking like a professional honest to goodness stream here soon moving forward. In fact, in two weeks... Social Distance Saturday is not coming back. It is now just going to be the Monster Kid Movie Club. And I can't wait for you guys and gals to see what we've got cooked up and ready to roll. So make sure you come over for that. The other way that I'm getting involved in KaijuCon Line is through a panel that I'm going to be doing at 4 p.m. Pacific 
on Sunday. Make sure you go to kaijuconline.com. That's going to be your portal, your main hub for the entire thing. It's going to give you all the links that you need to go to to get to the vendors, to get to the artists, to get to the panels with the special guests, including people like Linda Miller from King Kong Escapes, Carl Craig from Destroy All Planets, and Dory Krause from Ultraman Towards the Future. That was the Ultraman that was done down in Australia. They're going to have panels. I'm going to have a panel on Sunday where I'm playing a round of the Classic 5 Kaiju Edition with Stephen D. Sullivan, Anthony Wendell, and well, Seb Gordain, who you're going to hear in this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. So make sure you join us over at kaijuconline.com. It's going to be a good time. It's going to be an awesome weekend. And one more final bit of business before we get to, well, the rest of the show. We're going to be changing a few other things kind of behind the scenes here at Monster Kid Radio. Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to start offering sponsorships and advertisement here on the show as well as on the movie streams over at the Monster Kid Movie Clubhouse. Stay tuned for that for further information. Well, don't do anything. Just keep listening to the podcast. All right. Right now, I'm eager to get to Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And then, of course, the main conversation with Seb right after this. Tonight, meet the twisted genius of Edgar Allan Poe. Experience a terrifying tale of druid witchcraft and the scream that kills. Cry of the Banshee. American International presents new heights in horror never before filmed. Vincent Price stars in this new adventure in Terror and Torture. Don't miss Cry of the Banshee. You'll learn to fear it. Rated GP. Dracula has risen from the grave. Boy, does he give a hickey. Hello. The body beneath, filmed in the graveyards of England. A tale of terror, of vampires, of cannibalistic desires, of unending blood feasts. and daughters by you. 
Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's movie, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, was featured in Famous Monsters 98 from May of 1973. It was a six-page article with eight photos. It began with this brief history of mummies in the movies. As far back as 1911, moviegoers were thrilled by films featuring the frightening result when a mummified corpse refused to stay in the tomb or a reincarnate relic of ancient Egypt returns to wreak vengeance on the 20th century descendants of those who wronged him in his first life. The Mummy, 1911, When Souls Meet Souls, 1912, and The Eyes of the Mummy, 1918, all preceded what most fans consider to be the first film of its kind, The Mummy, 1932 starring Boris Karloff as Imhotep, High Priest of Horror. Remaining one of his great characterizations, Karloff's Imhotep was the undead embodiment of ancient evil. Head and shoulder wrappings above the heavily bandaged, lumbering and limping monsters we think of when we hear the word mummy. Imhotep's power was not merely brute physical strength, it was his ability to invoke the ancient curses of Egypt upon his enemies. Universal followed their Karloff classic with a string of less interesting mummy pictures starring Lon Chaney Jr. as Karis, servant to the high priest of Karnak and protector of the tomb of the princess Ananka. Tom Tyler first played Karis in The Mummy's Hand, 1940, with Chaney changing into the bandages for The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Ghost, and The Mummy's Curse. Over the years, other mummies have battled the blazing sun of Aztec Mexico, as well as the one-liners of Abbott and Costello. In 1959, Hammer Films, England's number one exporter of shuddery screen fare, remade the story of Karis with Christopher Lee in the role. Two sequels, The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb and The Mummy Shroud, followed in its moldy footsteps until, in 1972, Hammer returned to ancient Egypt in blood from the Mummy's Tomb. The article continues with a spoiler-field synopsis of the movie and concludes with this interesting combination of behind-the-scenes and critical review. If the above story sounds a bit confused and complicated to you, you may find yourself equally confused after you've seen the picture. Director Seth Holt had finished filming almost the entire movie when a sudden heart attack sees him one day on the way to the studio. With the director dead, Hammer executive Michael Carreras had to finish putting the movie together. 
Unfortunately, Holt had made radical changes in the script, and only he knew how the finished film was supposed to look. Carreras did as best he could, but the completed movie is not very easy to follow, and not as exciting as it might have been if the original director was able to apply the finishing touches. But in the movie industry, as in ancient Egypt, men are made immortal, and the good and evil that they do live on long after they've gone. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Kenny, once again, thank you. You're knocking it out of the park. I really appreciate you sending in these segments every week. And listeners, make sure you tune in on Saturday in the Monster Kid Movie Club because Kenny doesn't have just one, not two, not three. He's got at least four segments in the lineup. His look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, kaiju style. I love what I've seen so far. I think you guys and gals are going to love it too. Once again, Kenny, thank you so much for all of your support and for being part of the Monster Kid Radio family. It means a lot, man. And they read passages aloud from famous monsters of Filmland. They totally rock. Nothing can strip your nerves screamingly raw like the diabolical Dr. Z and his doubly diabolical daughter. How many thrills can you take? Warning. This picture is for people with nerves of steel. Get rid of her right away. The sooner the better. I'm leaving here and Nadia's coming too. Too late now. Such carryings on, and such carryings out, you've never seen. I've caught a glimpse of a young woman like Melissa. You try to get her here. If we succeed, she'll be yours more for The doctor's dilemma has to do with an impossible cure. He's blood-bent on affecting. No matter how many beautiful girls are tortured and killed in the process. You've gone crazy. You're possessed by the demon of torture and murder. You've committed your last crime. I hate her. She's the cause of all this. like to shiver and shake, quiver and quake, there's mayhem on a monstrous scale in the most unlawful, really awful, awful Dr. Orlock.
This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. I'd like to welcome to the show somebody, well, he's been on the show before. You guys and gals might remember his voice, and if you don't, you're going to learn it now because I have a lot to talk about with Seb Godin. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm super excited to talk to you for a number of different reasons. One, we're talking about one of my favorite subjects, mummy movies, and we're going to be talking about a lot of the stuff that you've got going on. You've had a lot of awesome things happen for you lately. You got some movies coming up. We got something in pre-production right now with a Kickstarter campaign. We got a lot of of audio work going on man you're just a busy guy are you sleeping these days or how are you got all this stuff going on uh you know i average five to six hours a night and i i somehow survive on just that <laughs> i like to tell myself i can do that but uh I'm, I'm not getting any younger man it's getting harder and harder to do that <laughs> <laughs> need to find myself some uh, tana leaf tea or something i don't know you know <laughs> you know or yeah a good healthy substitute at least something like that something like that so when i talk about all the stuff you've got going on i mean we're going to talk about all of it but you've got blood rights of the vampire which you just premiered on facebook live it's like a watch party you've got ouija mummy coming up later this year you've got a kickstarter campaign for your next movie you've been doing a lot of audio drama stuff with the quarantine and everything is that what got you going got the the creative wheels spinning for you or yeah well you know i mean uh, uh a lot of the movies like you know blood rights and uh ouija mummy they were shot a a while back so they're just premiering now but with the audio drama stuff anthony dp man runs a uh company called bleak december they do amazing audio dramas featuring some great talent they had tony todd as count dracula and they did casting the runes with david warner and uh they just did the wicker man with brian blessed but he's a friend of mine he was in my movie blood rights of the vampire and uh I came to him and said, why, why don't we dig up some of your old scripts? Because he used to do radio shows in the 90s, a classic old school radio theater. And uh, I told him, why don't we uh, dig up some of these old scripts and do some live reads of them? And so we did uh, Frankenstein, Phantom of the Opera. We just did a uh, new adaptation of Dracula, which I wrote. Coming up next in uh, two weeks, we'll be doing an, an original Sherlock Holmes adventure that he had written in the 90s. You know, those projects are just perfect for the current situation, for the quarantine situation, because nobody has to leave their home. It's And with Zoom especially or Skype or whatever, it's very easy to just do this kind of stuff now and uh, get some really talented folks together and make the most of a bad situation. And when these go out, they're done on YouTube or how do you release them? So they're recorded live, warts and all, and then they're uh, put up on YouTube for 48 hours each episode. And is that it? Or do they go somewhere else where people can maybe purchase them? Or, or how can they be accessed again? Or is this a one-time deal? You got to be there and if you miss out otherwise. It's, it's like live theater. You got to be there. Wow. And it's gone. Although, I'm currently running a uh, Kickstarter for my new film, The Abominations of Frankenstein. And one of the perks is uh, 
you can get a recording of our Frankenstein audio drama. Look at that segue you just gave me right there. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. It's like you've been doing this promotion thing for a while. <laughs> it's been all it's been a busy three years. <laughs> Abominations of Frankenstein. Uh, it's it's a new movie coming up. This uh, Kickstarter is up and running, and by the time this episode goes out, it'll still be open. So I'll make sure there are links in the show notes so people can check it out. What's going on with that? I was talking with Anthony one night, and I said I really want to do a Frankenstein movie, and he pitched me this idea, this insane idea, which is basically that our Frankenstein, uh, Heinrich von Frankenstein, uh, a very fun kind of uh, Udo Kier-esque interpretation of the character. He's uh, survived into the modern day, and he's got a assistant who uh, is played by Vicky Bittis, who is the vampire in Blood Rites, and they're just uh, on a killing spree. They're trying to assemble this new monster, which I'll be playing. It's a bit of a hodgepodge in terms of influences. My main influence for it is uh, the Jess Franco gothic horror films, so like Count Dracula with Christopher Lee or... Uh, Dracula, Prisoner of Frankenstein. There's a bit of Andy Milligan in there, too. So like the body beneath and the ghastly ones. And of, of course, it's it's Frankenstein and I'm me. So there's a lot of hammer in there, too. All done on a shoestring budget because that's just how I work. Our goal is uh, $2,000. And I think we're about to push into the $1,000 mark. We're going to the fourth day of the campaign, which uh, for me is amazing success. I'm not used to a campaign doing quite so well so early on. So Jess Franco, that's like that. That's your sweet spot, you know, seventies horror, Euro horror, that sort, that sort of thing. Just having talked to you online, and the last time we had you on the show too, we talked a little bit about that. That's that's right where you like to live, right? Oh, absolutely. Like when it comes to genre stuff, I've got three great loves. I've got uh, the classic German expressionist black and white horror from the twenties and the thirties, and not just German expressionism, but all the Hollywood films that were inspired by it. So James Wells, Frankenstein, Murders in the Room, Morgue, so on and so forth. Classic uh, 70s uh, sleazy but artistic Euro horror and then Japanese sci-fi. Those are my three sweet spots for genre cinema. And my heart really does lie with Jess Franco and Jean Relais and the Italian filmmakers too. And Hammer as well, obviously. So yeah, Euro horror from that era is... That's, that's my comfort zone. And I think anybody who watches especially like blood rights they're gonna see that i mean the screams loud and clear although the japanese sci-fi i'm curious about that i'm i'm waiting for you to make a science fiction movie now well you know uh when i say japanese sci-fi i lean more into like kaiju stuff okay so now i want a giant monster movie from you now (laughs) yeah well you see that's the thing i would love to make a kaiju movie but they're the most there's even a cheap kaiju movie is more expensive than anything i could ever do at this point anyways you never know I've uh, I've done some guys in monster suits already, so maybe I just need to get some model buildings made. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you work with Anthony D.P. Mann. Long-time podcast listeners might recognize that name. He uh, was one of the people behind the uh, Horror Etc. podcast years ago. And when that show came to an end, he started doing a lot of other things. And it's always been keeping busy within the genre, making movies himself or working with Seb. And now knowing that he's been doing a lot of the audio work with you as well with uh, Bleak December and doing his own thing there, that's just fantastic that he's still doing stuff in the fields that we love. And now that you're working with him too, I mean, that makes it even better. I had cast him in Blood Rites because for people who are listening who don't know, uh, 
Derek mentioned that Anthony made his own films too. Uh, one of them was Terror of Dracula, which is an awesome old school adaptation of Dracula. And I thought, well, if I'm going to make a vampire film in Northern Ontario, I need Northern Ontario's Count Dracula in the film. And little did I know that when he got here and we started talking to each other, his main inspiration for uh, Terror of Dracula was Jess Franco's Dracula film. So we had a lot of the same inspirations and uh, a friendship grew from that point forward. Right on. That's exciting, man. I, I couple more questions about the Frankenstein picture, and then I want to go to Blood Rites. Uh, Abominations of Frankenstein, is it a contemporary story? Uh, yeah, it's contemporary, but very similar to Blood Rites. It's not uh, focusing on the time period. Like, we say it's the modern day, but there aren't going to be any cell phones or laptops visible in the film. I, uh, I, uh, with Blood Rites, I kind of went with the approach that the Universal films went with, where it's kind of set in a weird nether region of time where there are castles but there are still cars and things like that so abominations is contemporary but at the same time it could fit into almost any time period i think okay i know that i showed the uh, promo video that you have posted online during a recent uh, stream on saturday we do the streaming parties uh, Monster Kid Radio, and I showed that there, and it got a lot of attention. People really seem to like that. So I, I'm really hopeful that it works out. I'm going to be following the campaign. I love me a good Frankenstein story, and I like what you do. So, I mean, come on. It's got to be good, oh, right? Thank you. Well, maybe not good, but it'll be fun. <laughs> oh, well, hey. Thank you. Yeah, it won't be boring. How about that? <laughs> no, it won't be boring. And uh, we have, uh, if you like us on Facebook, check it out. We've got some concept art for our creature on there. And those of you who are big Hammer fans, I think you'll you're going to see the influences and what we have in mind for our creature. Right on. Yeah. And in the Kickstarter page, you even mentioned things like evil of Frankenstein and Frankenstein and the monster from hell. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're hitting in the, excuse me, you're pulling from the influences that we love. So yeah, it's comfort food, you know, that we're going to talk about blood from the mummy's tomb in a bit. And, um, and that era of hammer, a lot of the a lot of critics and historians kind of frown on that era of Hammer, but that's like my favorite time. You know, Scars of Dracula, Horror of Frankenstein, Blood Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, Twins of Evil, the '70s kind of amped up drive-in version of Hammer is what I really love. You know, I think when people think about Hammer horror, they immediately go to the '50s and '60s. You know, Horror of Dracula, Curse of Frankenstein, all of that, and and I love that stuff. I mean, that's probably my sweet spot when it comes to Hammer. That said. The 70s Hammer seemed to be taking some more chances and really kind of, you might look at it as kind of flailing around trying to find something that works, but I feel like they were taking all the influences of what was going on in the genre at the time and trying to put their own spin on it. And you see that in the Dracula films that came out in the 70s. You mentioned horror, Frankenstein, this film that we're talking about, Twins of Evil, of course. I mean, so good. It's really easy to just kind of write those movies off as, well, they just showed more nudity. But there's really more to it than that, I think. They're much bolder. They're more experimental. And they feel the most distinctly European in a lot of ways. Maybe it's because the sexuality is more overt. Maybe it's because they are a little bloodier. But for some reason, those have that stronger uh, flavor to them than their earlier films do. A lot of the times, it was the same creative people behind the camera and and doing work in front of the camera. You had Christopher Lee. You had Peter Cushing. You had these familiar touchstones from the more classic era of Hammer 
it, so it still feels like Hammer, but again, they're, they're experimenting. Like you said, I think it's just a good way to put it. They're, they're bringing in different influences as well and doing their own thing on, the, on top of all of that. And I, I love it. I think it's a really interesting period. When you look at it, you find a lot of really interesting things happening. For sure. I mean, uh, the film we're going to talk about today is my second favorite Hammer film overall. And my first favorite is Twins of Evil. So I have a, just a very strong affection for that era. That one's great. And that's got a wonderful Peter Cushing performance. Yeah, if I can just ramble about Twins of Evil for a split second, I just want to say, just for the fact that uh, Peter Cushing's character in that might be the most multi-dimensional character he ever played. How do you figure? So the film starts off and he's this archetype. He's kind of a, uh, like a witch finder general type figure. And he's very cold and stoic. And then Towards the end of the second act, beginning of the third act, he has this scene where he breaks down about how he just desperately wants to be a good man and genuinely believes what he thinks he's doing is good. And by the end of it, he's grown protective of his nieces and he's trying to do right by them, even if he has to kill one of them. It's got so much pathos to it. It's antagonistic. He's threatening, but he's got so much sympathy as well. And he gets to display that warmth when he drops the facade in that third act. I, I just love it. He does seem like a little bit of a broken man towards the end because he's been living this life almost unintentionally up until that point. And then there's that shift when he realizes what he has to do at this point. It's I'm going to get a little choked up about it because I love Twins of Evil as well. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a powerful film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything about it is just fantastic. I love the music. I love, well, hey, if anybody's playing along at home, how long did it take for me to bring up the film music? Huh? I know it's got a great score. Oh, uh, yeah. The way it kicks in during the opening credits, just as uh, Judy Matheson is getting burnt at the stake and the title card pops up, it's, mm, that's some good stuff. Goosebumps, man. Yeah. Goosebumps. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> back, back on track. Back on track. So I could back go off on- about this. Yeah. All right, I want to talk about Blood Rights of the Vampire. This was something that we talked about the last time we had you on the show. I don't think we had gone into production yet on that. I think you were still in the fundraising stage back then, or if not, you just wrapped that up. The movie's done. You had a premiere on Facebook. How'd that go? Ah, you know, it went great. It was starting, I was thinking about that because like, when I was on the show discussing it, it was a very different film at that time because uh, casting squabbles ended up leading to some rewrites. So it's a very different film narratively but stylistically and aesthetically it's the closest that i've come to making exactly what i wanted to make it's the film i'm the happiest with and uh the people who watched it seem to enjoy it quite a bit it's a very strange film and i know that and uh, its influences aren't going to appeal to everyone so i was very happy to see so much positive feedback and not just from friends from people i don't even know so that's always a good sign (laughs) <laughs> so it wasn't just like your family members who came in and said, yeah, good job, Seb. And then, you know, no, it's actually. Uh, I doubt any of my family could sit through that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely has, uh, and I've seen it, it definitely has a stronger style or, or uh, uh, maybe not stronger, but a more distinct flavor or way of telling the story it's got a lot of uh dreamlike qualities to it some of the other movies that you've done like uh Luigi mummy which is coming out later this year it, it's got its moments but it's more of a straightforward narrative that was also kind of a in a loose term a kind of a director for hire thing not that i got paid but i didn't write it well that makes a lot of sense actually having seen both the movies knowing <laughs> knowing that yeah <laughs> um but blood rights of the vampire has a very dreamlike kind of surrealistic approach 
to a lot of the scenes and a lot of the performances. Anthony does great. I love him in that. He's fantastic. He's one of my favorite, um, I don't know, would you call him a flat-out vampire hunter type in that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a he's a monk who's a bit of an expert in the occult. Our inspiration when we were discussing it, our inspiration for that character was actually Andrew Keir in Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Spot on, yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, anybody who's a big Hammer fan and watches Blood Rites, they'll probably recognize those elements pretty immediately in him. I did notice a lot of Hammer influences, a lot of Franco, a lot of the... Uh, the Euro horror, like you were talking about earlier, influences on that. Uh, even just the way it was shot, uh, the way you kind of paced it, mm-hmm. it has a very distinct pacing style. Very languid. It never gets boring, you know. It's very, you're in a dream. It, it really feels very dreamlike from beginning to end. Yeah, thank you. That that means a lot. That's what I was going for, you know, kind of the uh, the Jean Roulet vampire films. Those sure. played a huge part in uh, the way I wanted to pace it. You know, he has like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Grapes of Death, which it was his mm-hmm. attempt at a zombie film. I have. Uh, years ago when I was doing the uh, zombie podcast that I used to do, that was one that I had watched but never got around to reviewing. Yeah, you know, the, like those great shots of just the main character wandering around this like foggy landscape and things like that. That was kind of just the mood I was aiming for. A lot of it is mood. It's, it's, it's like a mood poem, almost. It's very poetic. Yeah. There, there might not be scenes that seem like they have a direct relation to uh, any kind of traditional narrative, but they all add to the mood. They all add to the tone and the environment of the movie itself. And I did pick up on that in Blood Rites of the Vampire. And if your Frankenstein movie is going to be anything like that, Oh, I'm really excited now because I, I don't know if I've seen a Frankenstein movie quite like that before. It definitely has a lot of those elements because much like Blood Rites, Frankenstein will have a lot of Vicky's character kind of wandering around, a lot of the monster wandering around as well. And uh, it's going to have that similar tone, but at the same time, it's going to have a much more theatrical kind of shock factor to it. It's going to be a, a melding of drive-in exploitation and art house euro horror that's what i'm hoping for listeners again there will be a link in the show notes to the crowdfunding campaign for that are there any future release plans for blood rights of the vampire yeah you know uh i think we're gonna do a proper announcement next week so it'll probably be known by the time this episode goes out but brendan and i are going to be placing up a pre-order for people who would like to stream it on vimeo on demand and uh, we're actively seeking physical distribution at this point. So uh, if anybody's listening and you, uh, you have a company and you, you want a weird little dreamy vampire flick, shoot me a message. There you go. I'll make sure, again, there's ways for people to get a hold of you in the show notes. So pay attention to that. You mentioned Andrew Keir, and I want to talk about him and uh, the movie, you know, the Mummy movie. Uh, but I want to talk about your Mummy movie first. You said it was work for hire, but I still picked up on some of your quirks. It sounds quite... I'm dismissive, but I did pick up on on some sebisms, I guess, in Ouija. Mummy. I love that. I love that. <laughs> what 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 was the deal with Ouija Mummy, and how'd you get involved with that? Dustin Hubbard, who had produced like Animator for me, my first feature, which it just got released on VHS, by the way. That's a that's on VHS. A yeah, that's a weird movie. Um, wow, had a fascinating release history so far. But anywho, uh, we were going to do a movie called The Necroplasmic Massacre. We had a really big cast lined up for it because we were going to have a big budget for it at one point. We were going to have Michael Pere, uh, James Duvall, I think, was attached, Giovanni Lombardo Radice. So anyways, 
the money fell through. The money people didn't come through with that, sadly. So we scrapped the idea and decided, I guess we're going to go back to do $5 movies. And I had already gotten a plane ticket to Florida. So I said, come hell or high water, I'm making a movie once I get there. <laughs> he had written a script called Mummy Massacre. And I arrived there and uh, we worked on the script a bit together. Like uh, he had written it entirely. I was just going through it and trying to figure out how I was going to shoot the thing. While we were doing our week's worth of pre-production, we got on a phone call with uh, Wild Eye Releasing, who handled like Animator. They were interested in picking up a mummy film. They didn't like the title Mummy Massacre. I told Dustin, tell them it's called Ouija Mummy. They immediately got it. And, well, we, we didn't get any money for it, but we got a distributor before we even shot the film. Oh, wow. So, yeah, Dustin wrote the script. He loves anything to do with Ouija boards and uh, possessions and things like that. So it's a story of a couple that move into a house, find some leftover Egyptian relics because the previous owner was an archaeologist. Uh, the wife messes around with a Ouija board and gets possessed by the spirit of a vengeful Egyptian princess and uh, uh, shenanigans ensue. <laughs> and uh, that'll be coming out on DVD through Wild Eye releasing uh, this October, just in time for Halloween. And it's a it's a fun flick. It's uh, again, I didn't write it, but it's got a lot of my energy in it. And uh, it's got some laughs too because it's uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek and i think it's got some great cinematography by clint kelly who's probably florida's greatest micro-budget cinematographer so if you live in that area and you make movies look for clint if the back of the dvd doesn't describe the movie as moves into the house finds a ouija board possessed by an egyptian princess and shenanigans yeah <laughs> if it doesn't end with that i think somebody's missing out i agree I totally agree. <laughs> How did you and Dustin connect? We were Facebook friends for a while. And then one day I was bored and we just started talking about something or other. I can't really remember, but we started talking and we talked through the night and I found out he produced films in the past and I was uh, about to graduate film school and I knew I wanted to make a feature. Dustin's got a great mind for things that are marketable, things that'll sell. And I gave him the title like animator and he thought it was great and challenged me to write a script in four or five days, which I did. Then, yeah, the, the rest was history. A friendship and a partnership was uh, born and uh, we've made four movies together so far. And, you know, I, I've since branched off and I've worked with other producers and I've produced things on my own. But Dustin's always a great friend. And once this nightmare ends that's going on in the world i'm hoping we'll get to make some more cool stuff very soon just looking at his uh, credits online i see the titles and i'm like yeah of course he works with seb so <laughs> <laughs> he's done some crazy stuff and when i look at ouija mummy and i look at like the cast list and like i said i've seen it you've got some low budget firepower in here you've got joel d wincoop in the film Yes. Who's done a ton of low and no budget horror movies, genre movies, that sort of thing. And I, I mean, it's got some cred is what I'm getting at here. And it's coming out in October. I'll make sure that we promote the heck out of it here because I love me a good mummy movie. You throw in some Ouija board stuff, two things that I don't think I would have mixed together, but it goes so well together in your movie. So I dig it, man. Oh, thank you so much. You know, it was shot in three days, and I think it's quite the marvel for how quick the turnaround was. I, I'm sorry, three days? Three days. Wow. Yeah. 
How how does that even? I I don't I don't even know how <laughs> you can make uh, that happen. But congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'll have this energy forever, so I better use it now. There you go. There you go. Use it up while you got it. Gotcha. And it is an Egyptian movie. It's got the iconography that you get with mummy movies. And I've made no secret listeners about how much I love mummy movies. And I mean, you put a mummy in it, you get somebody wrapped up in bandages and I'm all in. And I want to talk about that with you. But first, we got to play a game here on the show. Yes, I love this. A classic five. We have a game that we play here. It's called the classic five. I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards says a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get monster kids talking or keep them talking. Seb, are you ready to play a round of the classic five? Absolutely. This is the part I always look forward to the most. Right on. All right. Well, here we go. Card number one from the universal expansion deck. What was the most recent universal monster movie you've watched? Last night, I watched the uh, 1943 version of Phantom of the Opera with Dustin, who had never seen it before. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Here is all you've ever wanted in entertainment in one superb show. Here is matchless story, suspenseful, terrifying, never so thrillingly presented. Here in breathtaking technicolor is superb spectacle and splendor and romance. Here is a chorus of a hundred voices, a ballet of a hundred dancers, a cast of a thousand, starring Nelson Eddy in his most vigorous performance, lovely Susanna Foster, and Claude Rains in the most coveted role of the year as the Phantom of the Opera. My music! You've stolen it! You've stolen my music! Is that a particular favorite of yours, or...? Claude Rains in it is a favorite of mine. The film itself is kind of eh, in my opinion. No, he's good. He's really good. He's underrated, I feel like, sometimes when you look at the universal horror canon. Oh, absolutely. I mean, The Invisible Man is a massive favorite of mine. I could see that. Having watched some of your movies now, I could see that. All right, (laughs) card number two. Uh, What character from a classic monster movie would you like to hang out with for a day? Oh, that's a good question. Any character... I got to pick one who I know I could probably get away with not getting killed by. Someone who I could probably, you know, make decent friends with. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go with the fan of the opera. Really? I'm sure I could trick him into talking about art for like a few hours and then just sneak on away. <laughs> get out before he... <laughs> yeah. But get out before he changes his mind about me. <laughs> <laughs> good to know. Card number three. Oh, and this one's good. Since you're playing the monster yourself, who else could have or should have played Frankenstein's monster? Oh, man. Oh, man. There are so many that really, really should have. I think that if you look at the way the character is described in the book and like just the way he speaks, the dialogue he's given in the book, I think if given the opportunity in a real adaptation of the novel... And he did play the monster, so that's why I'm giving this preamble. I think Lugosi could have made a very interesting, book-accurate version of the monster. Huh. I think he could have demonstrated that anger and that frustration really well. I think of his performance in The Black Cat and the, the sorrow that he displays in that film. And I think that that could have translated very well into a Shelley faithful Frankenstein monster. If listeners, if you haven't read the original novel, uh, Frankenstein, it's very different than anything that Universal ever put on the screen or really anybody. I, I don't know who really did it best back then. I know in the 90s we had Kenneth Branagh try to pull it off, but still. 
1977, there was an Irish-Swedish co-production called Terror of Frankenstein with Per Oskarsson. I've heard about that. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it. It's probably the most faithful adaptation. Really? And, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, per Oskarsson's terrifying as the monster. I'll have to bump that up on my to-watch list then. But if I was to give another option, a more contemporary option, uh, I think that if they were going to, if Universal is going to properly remake the James Whale movie... Somebody whose face would match that Jack Pierce trademarked makeup so beautifully is Michael Shannon. Who oh, was wow. the Yeah. Yeah. I think he'd oh. probably nail it. Now I just want to see Superman fight Frankenstein. Um <laughs> <laughs> He did play Zod, right? That is the guy I'm thinking, yeah, he, right? He okay. Did, he did play Zod. Okay, yeah, okay, the, good. The villain the villain in shape of water and uh oh that's right big, yeah yeah that's yeah. probably a little bit more appropriate for monster kid radio to bring up <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's got just a great face and those intense eyes he's very karloffian i think yeah that'd be, he'd probably nail it but i could like theorize all or like talk all day about people who should have played frankenstein's monster i think it's probably one of the most versatile characters in the monster can because there's so much you can do with him you can make him a, a brute like Juan Chaney Jr. or even Christopher Lee you can do the Shelly thing uh, there's so much that you can do and we've gotten a lot of really amazing versions of the monster in just the past five years there were rumors years ago that Guillermo del Toro was going to do the film with Doug Jones as the monster oh he would have been amazing oh just man. he can still be amazing oh yeah I'm sure yeah I mean just when it comes to uh, monster actors, uh, actors that can perform through makeup, Doug Jones is one of the best. Um, just his his mime abilities, the way he's able to just perform without performing, it's just amazing. He's one of the great. Uh, I like. I, I love hand acting. Any actor that knows how to really use their hands, yes. and he's a master of it. Yes. Well, this could be an interesting topic for a future show. So I'm going to put a pin on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Question number four, card number four. Favorite flying kaiju? Favorite flying kaiju? Varen. I love Varen yes. the Unbelievable. Yes. Yes, he doesn't get enough credit, man. I love Varen. Team Varen all the way. And it's a good movie, too. I watched it again just two weeks ago, and it's still a very good, moody little kaiju film. And that, that black and white cinematography is so good for giant monsters. I wish there were more black and white kaiju films. Yeah, it's something that they really kind of got away from pretty quickly. And, and I know part of it was the technology and, you know, business purposes. They want to make sure they can get more people to see the movies in color. But, man, the first Gamera film, the first Godzilla film. Yeah, they're such striking films. And there's something so haunting about this big monolithic creature in black and white that's just haunting. It really amps up the horror of the situation more so than like a fully bright colorful mothra film for example they, they, yeah. it's still pretty impressive but it's not as scary as godzilla you know the first no, godzilla exactly. anyway. or, or even it's not a great film but even godzilla raids again is an amazing looking film i've really come around on that one i i used to not really like that one but i stumbled across a youtube video a while back man i wish i could remember the name of the guy who did it i'll put it in the show notes i think i've mentioned it here on the show before where he he really kind of changed my mind on that film and the messages it's trying to tell. And, mm -hmm. and I was really fascinated by it. I'll send you a link. It's, it's something that I think will make people look at Godzilla raids again in, in a new way. 
Yeah, please do, because I do watch it maybe once a year or so, and I typically enjoy the first 40-odd minutes of it, mm -hmm. and then it, its pacing just stumbles from that point forward. Well, going back to Varan the Unbelievable, do you prefer the Japanese or the English? I've never seen the uh, the American cut with Myron Healy. I've only ever really? seen the, uh, the Japanese cut. The Japanese cut's my preferred as well, but I find the English language cut, the American cut, so interesting, just as, as storytelling, as a storyteller, I'm fascinated by taking something that already exists and then kind of changing it to tell a different kind of story, uh, mm -hmm. you know, shooting new footage and things like that. I think it's less effective than, say, like Godzilla King of the Monsters or even adding Brian Donlevy to camera, but I find it fascinating. So if you ever do see it, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, may that be even a good topic for a future episode. Hey, there we go. We'll make a list and put that down too. So. <laughs> <laughs> another possibility all right final card final question favorite ed wood film oh man that's tough because i love ed wood i really do <sighs> i'm gonna say bride of the monster i think it's actually his best film just from a filmmaking standpoint and also it's lugosi somehow i think at that point in his career at his best he gives a really strong performance and sells that campy ludicrous dialogue beautifully I used to tell people that I always felt like Bride of the Monster was the most quote-unquote real movie from Ed Wood. I could see that. It feels the most complete and correct. It, like, technically, it feels like it's got an, a strong narrative story, even though it's a little campy. It just feels the most complete. I could agree with that. Not that I'm saying I don't like the others. I do, but... My close second, and it's a very close second, is Glenn or Glenda. So where does Plan 9 end up in that for you? Third favorite, it's, but that's the one I probably watch the most because it's the easiest to just kind of relax and enjoy. I don't think I've seen Leonard Glenda in a long time. Yeah, I just love very personal films, and that is a very personal film. That's probably as personal as an exploitation film can get. Sure, sure. It's probably the one that's truest to who he was at the time. And mm -hmm. Put that back on the to-watch list. <laughs> it's, it must have been at least a decade since I've watched it, so... Well, you know what? I know we ended up talking about other things, but that was the Classic Five. What do you think? I think I'm uh, ready to talk about some Hammer Mummy madness. Because we're going to go from Leonard Glenda to Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. <laughs> yes. Blood of the ever-living, the ever-evil. Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. From the dead, dead past come powers too terrifying, too strange to be believed. You know who I am? Yes. And you're afraid, aren't you? Who is she, wearing the mummy's face? Is she one of us, enjoying our kind of life? Or is she the ever-living, the ever-evil? <coughs> from the mummy's tomb rated pg uh, blood from mummy's tomb 1971 uh, we mentioned andrew Keir. he's one of the leads he wasn't the original person cast in that role this was actually something that was played by peter cushing for a day which would have made the movie a little more uh would have made it different i think 
I think it would fit in more comfortably in people's minds as a uh, as a hammer horror film if the lead had been Cushing. He ended up leaving because his wife ended up getting really sick. So after a day of shooting, he had to be recast and Andrew Kier was brought in. And I like Andrew Kier a lot. He's excellent. And I don't know if I could see Cushing playing that role the way Kier did. I, I think especially about halfway through the film when Kier is pretty much an invalid at this point. He's so vulnerable. And I know Cushing could do that. But, man, I, I can't see Cushing in a role like that without expecting him to just jump out of bed at some point and say, aha, you know, here I am, you know, just because he's the guy, you know? Whereas yeah. here I can see playing that vulnerable role a little more believably. Oh, God, I can't believe I just said somebody said something better than Cushing, but... Oh. But here's the thing. Cushing is my favorite actor, and I still agree 100% with you. And also, it would have been a shame if uh, Kier had been robbed of a lead role, something he had so infrequently at that point of his career, especially. Yeah, that's true. And he was a hammer person. He was not brought in from the outside. He was part of the fold, part of the family, maybe not as entrenched as like Cushing was, but he'd done some other work for hammer as well. So it's not like he was a complete outsider. Uh, And then you've got Valerie Leon. Yes. Yes, we do. And, uh, she is, I mean, she's, she's, She's perfect, and she plays both characters with immense presence. And Hey gang, this is Derek from the future, at least the future from when I recorded that conversation with Seb. It's still the past for you because you're listening to it now, and I'm recording this in the past, but it was the future. Anyway, here's the thing. Seb and I started talking about whether or not her voice was dubbed in Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, and I tried to verify that before I put the podcast out. Now, I did see that when she appeared in one of the Carry On films, her voice was dubbed. But my limited amount of time that I spent Googling, the limited amount of time I spent Googling and IMDb-ing, I could not confirm whether or not she actually was dubbed. So I'm going to cut some of this out which is going to be a little bit awkward because the segue into the next part of the conversation actually came from the bit where we were talking about why Hammer would dub their actresses. And anyway, I just wanted to kind of pop in here and instead of making Seb and I potentially look like we don't know what we're talking about, I wanted to come in here and kind of clear that up. So if anybody out there knows different though, if you have documentation, if you have a source you can point me at to let me know whether or not her voice was dubbed in Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, I'd love to see it or hear it just to kind of confirm for myself now, because now I'm desperately curious. Anyway, uh, Seb talks a little bit about the fact that Hammer dubbing their female performers really said less about the women acting for Hammer and more about the Carreras' opinions on what women should sound like. And from there, we segue into... And speaking of the Carreras', uh, Michael Carreras had to come in and do some cleanup directing on this, or at least he considered it cleanup directing because the original director, Seth Holt, unfortunately passed about five weeks into production. I'll give Michael Carreras this. I think that it's pretty seamless because his stuff does match up fairly well with the rest of the film. I believe he directed all the stuff with George Caloris because all that stuff looks like it was shot in maybe a day or two. And uh, it, it does blend in well enough with the rest of the film. Yeah, when I had actually heard that, when I first discovered that one director had passed and Carreras had to come in and finish... I was a little surprised. I didn't think there was a disjointed film, to, a feel to the film at all. No, not at all. It's it's very focused and uh, narratively, I think it's one of Hammer's most ambitious films too. 
I think so too. And I, I think part of it's the director. Uh, I think Seth Holt, again, he had worked with Hammer before a couple of times with the nanny and uh, Scream of Fear. Yeah. So he had done a little bit of work for Hammer before as well. But this really felt like something bigger than either one of those films. It had a grander scope and a little bit more, definitely more supernatural than anything he had done for Hammer before. What do you think in his career, really? This is the only one that seems to be outright horror. The others kind of fall more into like the line of a thriller. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Either for Hammer or I think he did something for Amicus as well. Again, it was the kind of thriller, more grounded type storytelling, whereas this one goes full on supernatural. And how can you not? It's based on a Bram Stoker story. Jewel of the Seven Stars, is that the I title? Believe so. I believe so, yeah. yeah, which I have to admit, I've never read. <laughs> yeah, me either. You know, I, I think I have a copy of it. I think. It's somewhere. I have so many books at this point. I'm sure I've got copies of it around here somewhere, and if I don't, it's easy to get your hands on. It's in the public domain at this point, so anybody can put it out. Yeah, I have to admit, I've never read this particular one, and I, and I feel ashamed now. I feel like I, I just shame myself into needing to read it. You talk a little bit about what's going on with the story here. Uh, it's it's a cool little Egyptian mummy story. It, it does feel like it's got a grander scope until you really start to look at it, and it really becomes a personal movie, a personal story about, well, this princess, this Egyptian princess, and Valerie Leon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so there's this uh, Egyptian expedition as a lot of these uh, mummy movies start there's actually we go back in time first we go to the first to the burial of the original uh, egyptian princess uh, princess tara tara yeah yeah so she's being entombed not necessarily mummified we don't see any of the really graphic mummification or anything like that they actually entomb her looking pretty much intact with the exception of uh, a hand yes yeah. When the first time I saw this, I was a little surprised that they didn't spend more time wrapping her up or doing more. Because when you watch a lot of the Mummy movies from Hammer, they always cut back to the stock footage from the first Mummy movie they did with Christopher Lee. You know, seeing the mummification or the uh, somebody getting a tongue cut out, that sort of thing. But this one seemed a little bit more, let's just bury her and move on. Yeah. And of course, that doesn't go well for anybody involved. The hand gets out. There's a snow a snowstorm. What movie am I watching? A sandstorm. <laughs> <laughs> But now I want to see a mummy movie set in the snow. That's what. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's been done. Well, we need to do it. We, we should write that and then shoot it yeah, over the course well, of three days for five bucks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so a after all of this, we then move to what was modern day for them at the time. And we've got this team of Egyptologists, these archaeologists, and they find the princess is, is basically what happens here. And there's these different pieces these different artifacts that were buried with her, whether it's a ring or a snake or a skull from a jackal, that sort of thing, they kind of get distributed amongst everybody. But as with most of these mummy stories, nothing good happens to these people after they've tampered with a mummy. There's always the mummy's curse, right? So George Caloris' character is committed he's locked up somewhere and you know nobody talks to anybody again Corbeck is obvious Corbeck's one of the Egyptologists is is bad news and nobody wants to deal with him anymore and he's forbidden from being anywhere near the remains of the Egyptian princess and I'm being overly broad here overly simplistic I'm not getting too specific uh, are there any specific points here that you'd like to make sure listeners know about because I, I don't want to give too much away about this one yeah I wouldn't give too much away I'd say just uh you know Valerie Leone plays a dual role because she's also Andrew Keir's daughter. Mm -hmm. There's a connection between her and Tara beyond them just being played by the same actress. And uh, it doesn't bode well for anybody involved. <laughs> no, well, it does okay for Tara. 
Uh, it, it does. And, uh, you know, Corbeck, who's played so brilliantly by James Villiers, he's so good in this movie. Oh, so good. Yeah, so scummy and so evil. He tries to make it work for him, and, well, you know, you'll have to see the movie. He is so sleazy. <laughs> when he's first introduced to characters like Margaret and all that, he's this guy across the way spying on him. I mean, very Peeping Tom-like. It's very creepy. He is, and... Man, he's very domineering at the same time. Man, what a great voice. All these guys, these character actors that Hammer assembled, it was like the dream team of perfect voices. And he's got a great one for a villain role like this. Somebody else who really impressed me in this movie was Mark Edwards, who plays Ha Ha Todd Browning. Todd Browning. (laughs) (laughs) Which I love, by the way. Nice little uh, homage to, uh, well, one of our favorite directors who you'll hear on monster kid radio who directed dracula which is also written by bram stoker the legend of the seven side anyway there's the connection uh mark edwards plays the boyfriend yes and he's great because he's not the kind of bland nice guy love interest a lot of hammer movies had he's got kind of that 70s contemporary edge to him the entire relationship between him and uh, Valerie Leon's Margaret does have that kind of 70s. They're not quite swingers, but it's got that kind of swinging kind of vibe to it. Yeah, it's a they're a much more comfortable, open couple than you're used to seeing in Hammer films. Yeah, it's not. Well, it's 70s Hammer. It's it's yeah. it's very, like you said, very open, very comfortable. Uh, we do get some nudity uh, in one of their scenes together, although it's not played by Valerie Leon. She refused to do nudity for them, which is fine. Whatever. I mean, it's not like you have to have that, but it's a 70s Hammer film, so it's going to be there. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's, and it's very open and free, like you said, and uh, very not shy about hopping in bed together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it's just a more contemporary vibe to than some of the other films that they had done previously. And I like that, too. This is early in the 70s. I don't know if this was kind of like a, a trendsetter for them, kind of setting the trend up for them to go a little bit more sexy. And you know, the thing is, like, uh, this one being set in the 70s, it does a better job of transplanting the Hammer formula or the Hammer style to the 70s than their Dracula 70s films did, I think. Uh, we're, we're getting close to sacred ground, though, man. I love those movies so much. I, I love one of the two. The first one? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I personally can't do satanic rites. Oh, man. I, well, <laughs> take that <laughs> statement out of context. <laughs> yeah. Put that on a t-shirt. I, yeah. Draw the line. <laughs> um, I, I like parts of it. But no, I, I enjoy AD 72. And I think that that would probably make a pretty good double feature with this, actually. Oh, yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah. Wonder who's got the distribution rights to those. That'd be a fun night to plan somewhere at a theater somewhere. It would be. Oh uh, well, well, this uh, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb is uh, Studio Canal. They'd be who to talk to, I think. Do they have the theatrical distribution rights as well as home media? I wonder. I wonder. My understanding with a lot of the Hammer titles is that they just own them outright. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that's how Anthony got to do the Wicker Man audio plays because Studio Canal just outright owns that film. It's not Hammer, but a lot of their catalog is like that. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's the sad thing about the Hammer canon is that they didn't have their own distribution the yeah. way like Universal did or whatever. So it'd be impossible to put together a complete Hammer box set without jumping through so many legal hoops to get everybody on board. Yeah. Unfortunately, but... 
anyway, we're kind of getting way off track. Yeah, we are. <laughs> so, so yeah, we have the setup here. Um, what happens next? We've got this awesome ring. That ring is so cool. It is. It's uh, one of the great horror movie rings of the 70s, and the 70s had a lot of great rings in their horror. I'm thinking of Xander Vorkov now in Dracula yeah. versus Frankenstein. <laughs> I just watched that Al Adamson documentary the other day, so that's oh, fresh on so, my mind. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Yeah, so that's fresh on my mind. So yeah, I need to get my hands on one of those rings. But this ring in this film, it it's this big, it's not unobtrusive by any means. You can't help but notice this big shiny red ring that Andrew Kerr as Fuchs gives his daughter for her 21st birthday. And he gives it to her like a day beforehand, doesn't he? Yeah. And there's this cute little exchange, like my birthday's not till tomorrow. Yeah, but I can be early. It's just very cute. And that's a scene that I would have loved seeing played by Cushing right there. That moment, that exchange would have been nice. Mm-hmm. I can agree with that. He gives her the ring, and this ring obviously is our connection to Tara, the uh, Egyptian princess. The first time I saw this, I was a little surprised that they just had the sarcophagus and, and the mummy mm-hmm. there. They didn't go to a museum. It wasn't at an institute. It was just right there. Yeah, like, you just keep that in your home. You just keep that out back. Like it's, it's, I got, I have a storage shed. I keep my mummy in. I, I don't get. <laughs> well, you know, it, it keeps the locations to a minimum, which helps the budget. Good point. Good point. Listen to you, filmmaker. You. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Margaret is also uh, one of my favorite characters in this film. Is she has a doctor, Doctor yeah. Putnam, played by uh, the great Aubrey Morris who uh, probably, as spoilers here, gets my favorite death scene in the movie. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Mainly because the mo- from the moment he appears on screen, you're just waiting for him to die, and then it's so satisfying when he does. <laughs> that said, though, I really like Loris's end, his final mm-hmm. scene. It's so over the top. It's so Hammer. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Just a statue of the snake moving around and you know somebody's just underneath the frame line holding the statue and waving it around like a stick you know but it just <laughs> it looks so cool and so over the top and the way that George Glorus is selling it man he just looks terrifying or terrified uh, excuse me Glorus was a very underappreciated actor I mean he worked with Orson Welles for a good chunk of his career he was in Citizen Kane so uh he knew how to sell it no matter how ridiculous it may have been while shooting oh yeah totally committed totally committed yeah. to it it's fantastic ultimately this is a story about an egyptian princess wanting to come back yeah it's strange because despite the fact that this film does not have a traditional mummy in it she might be my favorite mummy character out of the hammer canon really why, why is that She's just a good villain. She's got great presence, and since she can speak, her goals are a little more uh, well-fleshed out than, say, Karis uh, in the Christopher Lee film, or I can't remember the ones from The Shroud and Curse. I can't remember their names. But, yeah, Tara is just easily my favorite hammer mummy. Just a good villain, really. I just love her. I think you just nailed it right there. Because she can speak, it's very clear what her motivations are. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not that the other ones didn't have clear motivations either, but because she can speak, she's engaging on a different level than, say, Karis was. Yeah. Uh, she's one of my favorites, too. And not just because she's a beautiful woman and she's got a great costume. But She does. <laughs> it, it, it is a great costume. And, and I'm a dude. Uh, but <laughs> uh, beyond that, she's a good actress, too. And she really brings a level of uh, charisma 
to this role for for a quote-unquote monster that you normally see wrapped up in bandages all wrinkled up maybe one of the arms doesn't work she is just as terrifying a mummy as anything i've ever seen and she still manages to have a tiny bit of uh, pathos in there too you still get that sense of desperation of just wanting to live yeah again yeah yeah and what i really like about valerie leone's performance is uh, there's one scene in particular when she is confronting uh, Berrigan, uh, George Cloris's character, mm-hmm. with her boyfriend, with uh, Todd Browning. It's <laughs> <laughs> weird to say. So uh, Margaret and Todd are visiting him uh, where he's been locked up and you know questioning him, wanting to get more information, maybe find the snake, that sort of thing. And Margaret recognizes that Berrigan notices the resemblance notices there's something a little off here and she gets this kind of evil gleam in her eye i'm going to use this to try to get what i want and todd's very uncomfortable about like what are you doing you can't do this but she does it anyway she pushes through and you can't tell is this all margaret or is tara starting to have some influence here it's such a creepy performance and moment it's one of my favorite moments in the entire film it is and it it adds like so many layers to either character because if it is Tara, that means that the character is way more influential over Margaret than we thought. And if it is Margaret, then that means Margaret's a darker character than we thought she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so good. It's really good. And the other thing I'd like to comment about the movie is it is early 70s, so you know you're going to see more blood. But this was a lot bloodier than I thought it was going to be the first time I saw it. Even like just outside of uh, the bloodiness, it's a violent film. Like it's just oh, the deaths are very aggressive and the body count is astronomical for a hammer film yeah a lot of dead people a lot of pulsating blood yeah a lot of pulsating blood i mean right down from the very beginning when you see her hand get cut off you see the stump just kind of pulsing uh you see people getting their throats ripped out and again it's just kind of pulsing out as they're dying it's pretty intense oh yeah it is and uh i got a hammer when i was pretty young and if i had seen this movie then it probably would have freaked me out a little bit because I, I didn't handle violence very well at a young age. That's why I watched a lot of older horror instead. This one probably would have been too intense for me. And even now, I'd say it's still pretty intense. So listener forewarned, it does get a little violent. Interestingly, though, one of the violent moments had to be kind of cut around. There's a moment where George Glorious' character, to kind of break him out of his hysteria, an orderly slaps him, but it's all done off screen. You, you don't see it because that was considered too much. Yeah, I don't want to see poor George Cloris getting slapped. You know, Aubrey Morris getting blown out a window and uh, <laughs> all that. Like, I, that I can handle. But <laughs> Well, and, and I get it. You know, they were not trying to further the image of those who are in a home sort of mentally ill being mistreated. And I get that. A fun bit of trivia for Hammer fans. The male nurse who slaps Caloris is uh, James Cossens, who played the dean of the university in Horror of Frankenstein. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. I, I don't know if Hammer really had contract players, but it certainly feels like that sometimes. Who was it who said it? I think it was about Roy Ashton, the makeup artist. He said Hammer didn't have contracts, but once you'd done one, it was safe to assume you would just do a few more. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. More so for the men than the women, because the women yeah. would kind of age out and they'd try to get a more younger model, I guess. Trying to push that hammer glamour. Yeah. Which, you know, it's just what they did as part of the hammer package. 
Uh, fortunately, almost every one of their women that they hired for the glamour also had incredible acting jobs. And they all went on to have, well, most went on to have very good careers outside of Hammer. Oh, sure. Sure. You know, one of my favorite Hammer actresses, Caroline Monroe, would go on to have an amazing career, even though she only did like two Hammer films. She did, and she still acts to this day. And I'm sure, you know, Monster Kid radio listeners will know Josh Kennedy and know of his film House of the Gorgon, but she's amazing in it. Yeah, well, I can't stop talking about how I, you know, the only reason the movie's successful is because I did the sound effects. But beyond that... (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. I'm kidding. I hope Josh hears that. (laughs) Uh Oh, man. Um, Anyway... (laughs) I don't know how to come back from that. Save me some. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> oh, boy. Did Valerie Leon do any other Hammer films? I was just trying to remember, and I was just pulling up her IMDb to see if there were any that I had forgotten. And I'm not seeing anything else that pops up as a Hammer title. I think right this might have been the been it. Yeah, and I think it's one of her only real genre credits as well outside of a small role in uh the truly awful queen kong i was like you can't skip over queen kong come on man oh yes i can (laughs) uh boy i I actually have never seen it i just love the title if it weren't a parody because that's that's where it loses me is the fact that it's a comedy but now i'm gonna ramble about queen kong well the only reason i wanted to bring it up because i'm really hoping there's a trailer out there that i can play here on the show because it just oh. sounds so absurd play the find the theme song for queen kong if you can oh it's that good that. huh oh it's something <laughs> all right well okay here's a segue to get back to the movie you mentioned music what did you think of the score in this one tristram carey is the composer's name it's not the bombastic James Bernard type score that you would uh, associate with Hammer Horror. It's much quieter, creepier, and uh, it's almost got more of a uh, mystical tinge to it than a lot of their stuff does. Uh, I'm a I'm a fan. Oh, me too. It, it's one of the scores that I have. I mean, well, I guess it's not really saying much when I say it's one that I have on CD, but because I have so many, but I do listen to it quite a bit and. This is not the only time he worked with Hammer. He did Quatermass in the Pit, another Andrew Keir film. And that film score has a completely different flavor than this one. Uh, this one and, feels very, like you said, very, a very supernatural bent to it. And it's uh, worth noting that he was a pioneer in electronic music. And you can hear a lot of those little tinges in uh, the score for this. Huh. I am a fan of the score, and uh, again, much like Valerie Leone's performance, it sells the dread, it sells the creepiness, but it also has that slight bit of pathos to it that you need. It's haunting. I mean, I can hear yes. it playing in my head right now, and it, it gives everything this kind of haunted, subtle mood. Yeah. It's not over the top, like it's not bombastic. I, I love James Bernard. Me too. I adore James Bernard. I mean, that that guy is just a genius coming up with everything that he did. You, you just can't help but feel everything you need to feel and then some when you listen to his music. With the Tristram Carey stuff here in this film, it's so subtle. You feel it kind of underneath everything, and it's just as effective. Yeah, I totally agree. 
totally really enjoy it. And listeners, if it is available on CD these days, a lot of them go out of print pretty quick. But if it is available out there, either get it as a digital release or a CD. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes if it is available because I love it. I love some of the more one-off Hammer film scores anyway because as much as I love James Bernard, it's nice to kind of have a little breather in between. And this is one of those ones that serves as a good breather for me. Yeah, I, I agree. Right up there with the score from Satanic Rites of Dracula, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's no, it's no stone ground from Dracula 1972 AD, but you know, it's just saying. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure is. <laughs> oh man, this film, from my understanding, didn't do very well at the, the British box office because it was the second half of a double feature with Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And I haven't seen that film in forever, but I would like to watch those two back to back to see how tonally similar they are. Because in my mind, there's probably some, even if that one's a period piece, some aesthetic similarities that I would like to touch on. Trying to think back to it. Now, I've seen it quite a bit. And you mentioned Josh Kennedy earlier. That's one of his favorite films. Dr. Jekyll, Sister Hyde. I mean, it does have the, not body swapping, but kind of soul changing thing to it. I wonder how that would play back to back. My understanding is that the distributors weren't too keen on this movie to begin with anyway. It just kind of put out there as the bottom half of a double bill. Which is a shame because it deserved much, much better. Oh, I feel like it would have done really well if it was really promoted as its own Mm -hmm. thing instead of kind of like a throwaway. And, you know, Hammer in the 70s I feel like had a hard time with distribution anyway. Just things just trickled out and that was that. It wasn't really a lot of ballyhoo the way that you'd see in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, no, and I'm not sure if that was on account of, you know, maybe their hearts for the promotion team wasn't in it, or maybe they just didn't have the money to do it anymore, or they were getting pushed out by bigger films. Because the landscape of especially horror in the 70s was changing so much, especially in that early era, because you were getting films like The Exorcist, which was just two years after this, and you're getting films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and like it was evolving, and that's ultimately what killed Hammer Horror. Watching these movies and like reading the history of their release, you get that sense of the impending end of it all. It would have been nice to see Hammer have like this big blowout, just boom, you know, this where we know we're going out. Let's have one big last hurrah. But they really just kind of dwindled off. I do think Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell is a good swan song. Yeah, it wasn't the last thing they did, but I guess for the classic Hammer genre feel, it, it does kind of serve that purpose. And that's a good movie, too. It's one I haven't talked about on any podcast yet. Um, well, you know, the Blu-ray comes out next month, so if you want somebody to talk about it with... You know, uh, I, I think I actually have a Blu-ray of it from uh, a different region already, but uh, I might take you up on that, especially since you've got so much Frankenstein coming up. So Yeah, I know. The, the 70s era of Hammer, which we've talked about a lot, and it is my favorite era of it. I love how experimental they got, but at the same time, there's that bittersweet sensation. It's almost like watching your favorite TV show hit its final season in a weird way. You always want to stop at like half an hour before it's over. Cause you just don't want it to end. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. I, it's uh, the copy that I have of Frankenstein and the monster from hell is from Australia. It's a uh, Blu-ray release. They put out down there and it looks okay, but I'm real curious to see what it looks like up here when it comes out. Mm-hmm. Add that to the list. <laughs> Although this, this uh, oddly enough, was not the ending of uh, Hammer's history with mummies. There was a comic book in the early 2010s. They did comic books. They did a Captain Kronos one. And they did 
The Mummy Palimpsest, which was about a woman getting bought from a slavery ring by an Egyptian cult who want to embed her with the spirit of their Egyptian princess. And it kind of plays out in some ways like a remake of Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. So if there are listeners who are just big Hammer fans, fans of Mummy films, or fans of this film in particular, seek it out. It's available in a very affordable trade paperback. It's just one volume because it only lasted four issues. But it's well worth reading. I'm familiar with the Captain Kronos. I was not familiar with the Mummy comic Mm -hmm. that they did. The Mummy Palimpsest, it's a strange one, and I know a lot of people didn't really enjoy it, but I I thought it was fascinating and way more effective in updating Hammer to the modern era than Hammer's actual film output of the last 10 years has been, in my opinion. Was that written by Peter Milligan? Yes. Okay. Where do I know that name from? Not Andy Milligan. I'm not mixing him with Andy Milligan. That's a filmmaker. Yes. Who you should spotlight on the show sometime. I feel like there's a lot to talk about with uh, Andy Milligan. He's an acquired taste, I feel like. Uh, He absolutely is. I kind of warmed up to him very quickly, but yeah, most people I know just have no tolerance for Andy Milligan. (laughs) Well, if I ever do a Mandy Milligan episode, it might give me an excuse to play the uh, Ghastly Ones music again on the show. I still need to see the Ghastly Ones. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen uh, Body Beneath, I've seen Guru the Mad Monk, and I've seen... Um, uh, it's escaping me. I need to see more. I haven't even seen his most famous film, which is uh, The Rats Are Coming, The Werewolves Are Here. That's one that I have seen. So, are the werewolves there? No, they're here. They're here. <laughs> and do the rats come eventually? Are they on their way? Or are they also there? Well, they're coming. <laughs> no. Um, it's It's not... <laughs> It's an interesting, it's a weird one. It's an interesting flick. Here in Portland, when the theaters are actually up and running, because right now they're not, but the Hollywood Theater here in Portland has in the past shown a couple of Andy Milligan films on 16 millimeter. Uh, I I haven't had a chance to go see them, but yeah, I think that's kind of neat that every once in a while they turn up in these these weird places and, and would love to see them on the big screen like that. So yeah, maybe we'll do an Andy Milligan episode. Listeners, I hope you're keeping track of all these things that Seb and I said we're going to do in the future because I'm not doing a very good job of it. And it's been nine months at least since I've had him on the show before. So let's let's not wait nine months to do it again. We'll do some Andy Milligan stuff. We are so off track here. I hope we've given this movie its proper due. I'm, I'm sorry we keep going all over the place. I think I've said pretty much everything there is. I just love this movie so much. I think it's one of Hammer's greatest. It's my second favorite. In my to- it's in my top five. Okay, so Twins of Evil is number one. This one's number two. What are the other three? Number three is Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Okay. Uh, number four is Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. Ooh, good call. And then number five, that's a very tough one, but I'm probably leaning towards the Vampire Lovers. Okay. Yeah. The Vampire Lovers may be tied with the two faces of Dr. Jekyll. Oh, interesting. Which, okay. A very underappreciated film. So, so you do have the two big franchises that they were known for in there. And you got a mummy film. Yeah. yeah. You know, I even fit in one of their Jekyll films. Yeah. One of the two. A quick note about the guy who wrote Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, Christopher Wicking. He had quite the genre credentials. Uh, he wrote Scream and Scream Again with Vincent Price and Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. He wrote Cry of the Banshee with Vincent Price. 
He uh, also wrote a film I like quite a bit that I never see people talk about, but it's AIP's Murders in the Room Morgue with Jason Roberts and Herbert Long. You know, I ended up watching that the other day. It was released as part of a uh, double feature on Blu-ray years ago. With Dunwich Horror. Yeah, which I picked up because I love Dunwich Horror. Me too. So I ended up watching that a while back. It's been a long time, but I remember thinking, you know, this is not half bad. It's not bad. The interesting thing is that it's not an adaptation of Murders in the Room Morgue. It's more of a strange take on Phantom of the Opera. Exactly. Yeah, it has no, almost nothing. Not that there's ever been a Poe film that has anything to do with Poe anyway, really. But, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, it really is not a Poe story at all. It feels like he's a very Phantom. Very Phantom. But it does use the Poe story as kind of a an element of it because it's about a theater troupe putting on an adaptation of murders in the room morgue. It's more Poe than say like Witchfinder general or, um, yeah. Or the haunted palace <laughs> or, or, or the oblong box. Yeah. Or any of universal's so-called mm-hmm. Poe films like the Raven, um, which are great movies. Oh no, I'm, I'm not, I'm yeah. not discrediting, but they're not, all. but they're not good adaptations. No, they're, they're pretty lousy in that department. But no, Murders in the Room works good. Scream, Scream Again, what, that was Amicus, wasn't it? It was, and I, that's a crazy, very 70s movie. I, I like that one quite a bit, too. He also wrote uh, Demons of the Mind, which was a, another Hammer film. And he did uh, To the Devil a Daughter, which was Hammer's last film, I think. Uh, pretty close to the end, yeah. Which is one I've never seen. I've seen it once. I don't remember liking it, but I own it, so clearly I didn't hate it that much. We're fans of Hammer, though. We're going to have... It's, I've got a copy true. of She in my collection, okay? I, oh, man, I have not seen She. <laughs> and the thing is, like, yeah, even the worst Hammer film, there's something to enjoy. Even the ones that everybody seems to dislike. Like, I love Horror of Frankenstein and uh, Scars of Dracula, and those are pretty widely dismissed films. So Hammer's just comfort food for me. I struggle with Horror of Frankenstein, and I think only because of how I saw it. Because when the Hammer films were presented to me to, in the first place, they were on a couple of VHS tapes uh, recording the extended play. So I had all the Dracula films and all the Frankenstein films in a handful of VHS tapes. And I just mainlined them over a few days. And I watched them in order. And watching this franchise, Frankenstein films, it's always Cushing, always these guys doing this stuff. And suddenly it's a reboot. I was like, where's my Cushing, man? I got to have my Peter Cushing. I'm like, this is not the story. I already saw this one. You know, so <laughs> uh, now, now I've gone back and watched it. And as a standalone, it's fine. I'm just a big fan of Ralph Bates. I just think he's so good in that movie. You know, we always talk about Cushing and Lee and them when it comes to Hammer. But Ralph Bates was really good, too. He was. Uh, you've seen Lust for a Vampire? Best part of that movie. He is the best part of that movie. He's so wonderfully slimy in that role. And it's it that movie for me is kind of difficult to watch because of the song. I, I can't strange. Love. That's I can't I can't do it, man. I, I, <laughs> I don't like that song. I like that movie though. I think it's good trash. But it, uh, it's my least favorite of the three Karnstein films. Do you count Vampire Circus as a Karnstein film? Well, I mean, you can count Vampire Circus, and even Captain Kronos has a slight Karnstein connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I think of Karnstein, I think of the three, you know, Twins of Evil, Vampire Lovers, and Lust for a Vampire. Th- those are the three that I kind of set aside specifically as Karnstein. That's fair. But Vampire Circus does have a connection, and, and Kronos does too. And I love Captain Kronos, so. Oh, me too. That's That should have been a franchise. Man, such a missed opportunity. I know some people are not fans. Scott Morris, Dominique Lamsey's. But, you know, I love that film. <laughs> yeah, me too. And uh, it predates a lot of kind of tropes that would become like standard horror 
fantasy characters like you know vampire hunter d and like or even like the hugh jackman van helsing owes a lot to more so to captain Kronos than anything it thought it was trying to pay homage to i think you're right yeah and the music's fantastic and uh carolyn monroe's wonderful and that's a film in which they dubbed the actor because <laughs> uh, he was a german actor right mm-hmm. and he's good i've seen him in other things i like him i thought having a strong german accent would have made the characters more endearing in a way yep yeah we could just turn this into a hammer appreciation episode i think maybe, maybe that's I've, what we need to do at some point or maybe even like a three episode thing going from the 50s 60s and 70s oh i like that yeah. I've been thinking about changing some things up here on MKR, getting some more uh, less movie-specific and more like topic-centered type episodes, and that would be a fun topic to explore. Well, let me tell you what I love about MKR and why whenever, okay. I, worked, whenever I worked in a kitchen and I'd always put on MKR, you know, like old episodes and whatnot, it's because I'd work with people I'd never know what to talk about, but if I put on this show, it's like I was hanging out with movie friends, friends who knew what I was talking about or thinking about. So I think that doing episodes like that would push that element of it even further. And I I like that. It's very comforting. You keep saying comfort food, talking about some of these Hammer films. And I think that spot on with almost all of the movies that we talk about here on the show, for me anyway. I mean, I'm the guy that puts on Manos the Hands of Fate on purpose. Dude, Manos scares me. To me, it's a creepy movie. I don't know why. There's something about it that's so unsettling and uncomfortable about the whole thing. A couple weeks ago, we played that on the stream, but we did it in black and white. Oh, wow. And it definitely added uh, a very creepy edge to the proceedings in a way that I, I even I didn't expect. It was my idea to do it. But <laughs> it's like, this is really effective in a black and white form, more so than I think anybody ever thought it would be. Yeah, I'll have to try that out at home because, man, there's something about Manos where you watch it and it, I don't know how else to describe it other than it feels like you're watching something you're not supposed to be seeing. Yeah, I think I mentioned her earlier when I was kind of teasing her about Captain Kronos. I think it was Dominique Lamsey's who tells me that she feels like she's watching almost a snuff film watching that movie. I'm not a huge MST3K fan, but I have seen their episode of it. And I think the first thing they say is, wow, they sent us a snuff film, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And they make a joke in there, too, about how this film feels like the last known footage of anybody. And it kind of is. Yeah, and it really feels that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm friends with Jackie, you know, so I know they all, somebody survived, but you know, it doesn't feel like it. So she's still acting, isn't she? Yeah, she still does some stuff. She lives up here in Oregon and she works with uh, like Joe Sherlock. Joe Sherlock, yeah. And does a lot of work with him. She was in the Mono sequel that they did up here. She's done a handful of Mono's related projects just as well over the years, but she's an artist. She's really good. She's just awesome. So yeah, I know somebody survived. <laughs> Despite yeah. what the documentary Hotel Torgo will tell you, she survived. I was not familiar with that. No. It, it came out early 90s, I think. And it's it's a short little thing about how Manos was a haunted or cursed film and nobody survived and nobody can find anybody who's involved with the film anymore. Really kind of playing off what happened with John Reynolds, Torgo. Yeah. And, and just kind of extending that to everybody that was involved. And I guess Jackie even reached out to the filmmakers and said, hey, I'm, I'm still here. I'm, I'm still around. But they just never bit. They wanted to kind of tell their own story about how Manos was cursed. That's not cool. That's upsetting. Manos is one of those things, though. It's in the public domain, so... You can do what you want. Pretty much. Pretty much. Like making it black and white, which I recommend. And, you know... What are we talking about again? I don't even know. Well, you know, I was just going to say, you made me do my top five Hammer films. I want to hear yours. Oh, boy. Really? Okay. Yeah. So, 
when we were doing the 1951 Down Place podcast, we did this. Uh, it was one of our very first episodes. It might have even been the very first episode we did. Where we talked about our top five. And let me see what I put there and see if I still feel this way. So what I put back then was number five was Fear in the Night. Number four was Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Three was Captain Kronos. Two was Revenge of Frankenstein. And my number one was Brides of Dracula. Oh, man. But these days, I think I might change that. Yeah. And I think that happens, too, with us. You know, I'm sure if I ask you in a week, you might change your list of Hammer films or whatever. But It's true, because like I I did the top five, then I started remembering, oh, yeah, Phantom of the Opera and uh, yep. Phantom of the Opera, Curse of the Werewolf, Brides of Dracula. That's, yeah. There's so much to love. So I would keep Fear in the Night. I think Fear in the Night doesn't get enough attention. Uh, it's directed by Sangster. Peter Cushing's in it. I really enjoy this one quite a bit. Uh, are you familiar with that one? No, I was going to say, uh, that's one I need to see. Fear in the Night? Fear in the Night uh, came out in the uh, early 70s. Joan Collins is in it. Oh, and Ralph Bates. And yeah. Ralph Bates, yeah. Uh, no, I, I'm a really big fan of this one, so I would recommend that one. I would keep The Seven Golden Vampires, just because I love that mixing of, of mythologies and monsters and all that. I have to keep Captain Crone. Man, I feel like I'm betraying or cheating on Revenge of Frankenstein or Brides of Dracula if I put anything else up in that list. But I love those movies so much, too. I love Revenge of Frankenstein a lot. It's awesome. And I think Michael Gwynn might give my favorite Hammer Frankenstein monster performance. Very Doug Jones-like at points. The way he kind of contorts himself. Yeah. Yeah. And Brides of Dracula is just one of the most perfect sequels. Even though Dracula is nowhere to be seen in the film, I love that film. It's got my favorite method of uh dispatching the head vampire at the end with the windmill yes oh god when i saw that the first time i saw that i i jumped out of the couch i was like yeah that's great (laughs) it's awesome i love that it's one of my favorite things about vampire movies just the creative way of of dispatching the vampires which is why i like dracula 8072 so much and satanic right so much except for the end I'm not a big fan of how they got rid of dracula at the end of satanic rights it's yeah it's just so lazy i get it but Come on. Yeah, no matter what kind of a bush it is, he still got beaten by a bush. Yeah, there's that. But, yeah, Windmill Death, awesome. One of my favorite ways to dispatch a vampire. That should be an episode. You know, top five ways of killing a vampire in a classic vampire film. And, you know, I'm not going to spoil my own film here, but uh, when folks check out Blood Rites, I think we came up with a pretty fun way of defeating. Oh, I like, I loved it, man. I loved it. And that's where I was kind of going with that. But you're right. I don't want to spoil it. (laughs) You're absolutely right. No, I dug that quite a bit. Thank you. That was really cool. That was really cool. So, okay. We've kind of been going on for what, an hour and a half now? Yeah. It's an (laughs) epic. And we spent maybe 30 talking about the top. (laughs) And, you know, that's what happens when Monster Kids get talking. It's because I pulled out the cards, right? It is. It's a classic five. Also because, uh, well, like you said, when we get talking, there's no stopping it. It really is true and i have a feeling that you're one of those guys that if i lived anywhere near you or vice versa we'd spend so much time talking about movies and neither one of us would get anything done so it's probably a good thing that we're in different countries right now it's true with no method of traveling yeah that makes moments like this all the more special there you go and i want to have you back on the show more often uh let's definitely plan to do some more hammer and 70s type stuff and i'd love to do an andy milligan episode let's commit to that right now we'll do an andy milligan episode i would love that we'll pick like two or three titles because they're all pretty short films yeah yeah so we'll, we'll pick two or three titles and we'll burn through them and do an episode on that i love that idea so much but i don't want to take away from your filmmaking 
Oh, time. I, I always have time for this stuff. Well, I need more of your movies out in the world, man. I, I, I said this before. I'm going to say it again. I love it when monster kids do good. And you, sir, you're doing good. Thank you, sir. Definitely want to have you back on. Where can people find you online? Is Facebook, Twitter? Do you have a website anywhere? What's the best way for people to follow up with you? You know, people can uh, go on Facebook uh, and find me a multitude of ways there. There's the Melting Man Films Facebook page. There is Bleak December Live that you uh, reach me through. There's the Abomination of Frankenstein Facebook page. And then if you really, really want your Facebook feed clogged up with some very strange film opinions, you might be able to add me as a friend if you're lucky. If you're lucky. And uh, if you're wanting to like work on stuff, I have IMDb Pro. You can reach me through there. Just uh, I'm pretty approachable, I like to think. Well, you know, if you want your movies to be as successful as House of the Gorgon, you need me to do your sound effects. So I'm just saying. I was, uh, you know, I was waiting for you to say that. (laughs) Okay, I know we kind of got away from Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. Bottom line is, it's an excellent movie. I'll make sure there are links in the show notes for you to pick up your own copy. Please follow the Amazon affiliate links. It kind of helps us out while you're getting your hands on an awesome movie or two. I'll also make sure there are links to a couple of the other movies that we talked about, as well as a link to the Kickstarter campaign for Seb's upcoming movie, Abominations of Frankenstein. I'm also going to play the audio for the Kickstarter video here in a second, but just head over there, support him if you can. If not, maybe just share the link. We just want to make sure that Seb's project gets in front of as many eyes as possible. And some of the rewards here are things like actually getting a copy of the movie or getting a recording from one of the bleak December audio dramas that is no longer available. We talked a little bit about that at the beginning of the conversation. There's a lot of different rewards here for you. And if nothing else, man, I'm just wanting to see the movie. So Seb, good luck with the campaign. Thanks for being part of monster kid radio. And we will have you back on down the line to talk about, I kind of lost track actually Uh, the Andy Milligan thing. That's what I'm remembering right now. So yeah, let's plan for that. Thanks again, man. Into this house came the monsters of slaughter. With some of the most hideous tortures and heinous crimes ever shown on the motion picture screen. The ghastly ones. Mutilation and the sadistic story of human slaughter. Meet Colin, the mad brother who loves to eat meat. Live meat. Or Liz, whose sick need is only satisfied by the sadism of man. Any man. Or John, who learns the terror of the ultimate torture, but never lives to tell about it. The ghastly one. What is it? Not for the squeamish, but an experience so sensually exciting that it will be the stomach shocker of your life. The ghastly one. Someone you can hold tight. The rats are coming. I can't 
constrained myself with will. They haven't eaten yet, you know. What are you talking about? The rats. They haven't eaten since I bought this one. And I should think that it would be very hungry by now. They eat almost. <laughs> the man-eating killer rats are back. More gruesome, more terrifying than ever before. But they are not alone. The werewolves are here too. Evil, depraved, blood-sucking werewolves that will scare the pants right off you. You must take her to see. The rats are coming. The werewolves are here. When modern Navy scientists defy the unknown mysteries of the past, perpetuated by centuries of native beliefs, then nature strikes in all its vengeance in Barath, the unbelievable. For generations, the legend was passed on. They said Baran was there, deep in the still water. They said, let Baran sleep. That lake water is going to be contaminated after we finish the tests. It'll probably affect the fish, too. We just can't take any chances. But those people have depended on their lake for their livelihood all their lives. And their parents before them. Anna, now should we be this concerned about a handful of people when we might perfect something that could benefit all mankind? But the Navy commander would not heed their warning. He moved forward, ever searching, ever probing, deeper and deeper, until it was too late. Baran rose from the depths slowly, unrelentingly, to wreak its vengeance on a civilization that wanted to know too much. Tumultuous. Terrifying. it will shock you to the core. Buran, the unbelievable. MonsterKidRadio.net is where you're going to want to go to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio, like our contact information. Our email address is MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com and our voicemail number is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. There are links to Seb's Kickstarter campaign. There's going to be a link to Kaiju Line, as well as the Monster Kid Movie Clubhouse over at MonsterKidMovie.club. We've got the two YouTube channels. We've got the T Public Shop. Just everything that you need to know about Monster Kid Radio, it's right there. And we're even going to put in there what's coming up next week. But you know what? I'm just going to tell you right now. Consider this a spoiler. Next week, and this is not changing, I promise. We have filmmakers Ansel Farage, who's been on the show before, and Nathan Wilson, who is not, coming onto the show to talk about their upcoming movie. The Thousand and One Lives of Dr. Mabuse. It's coming out here soon. In fact, it's coming out in about a week and a half because we are going to world premiere it in the Monster Kid Movie Clubhouse. Not this Saturday, but next Saturday. And Ansel and Nathan are going to be in the live chat while the movie's showing. This is the third film in their Dr. Mabuse I'm going to call it a franchise at this point because Dr. Mabuse has turned up in more than just these three movies for them. And because it is the third installment, we want to make sure everybody's up to date. So we're going to be showing the previous two films in the stream as well. And if that's not enough to entice you to come to the streaming, screening, screaming next Saturday, 
Come back next week for the next episode of MKR because I'm sure Nathan and Ansel will do a much better job selling their movie than I apparently am right now. It's a great conversation. I had a good time chatting with them and hopefully you will too. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. The song Boris Frankenstein's Nightmare is copyright 2020. Beware the dangers of a ghost scorpion, which you can find over at ghostscorpion.bandcamp.com. Thank you again for letting us play your music here on the show. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.